Can you hear me? Can you hear me? A little more, a little more. Can everybody hear me? Raise your hand if you cannot hear me. <laughs> Turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 8. Chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. And I want you to, right now, just look real quick at the last sentence of that paragraph. Verse 27, where the disciples say, what sort of man is this? What sort of man is this? And I want you to imagine for a minute that, that you're someone who's never heard the name of Jesus in your life. You have no clue about Christianity. But somebody comes along and they give you a book, a little short book, the Gospel of Matthew. And that's all they give you. And they say, here, read this. This is a biography about a man. By the time you get to this sentence, you're probably already thinking, man, that's what I'm saying. What sort of man is this? And, and, and you're only at chapter 8. You're thinking, yeah, what, what sort of man is it that's got this 2,000 year genealogy? What sort of man is it that's born of a virgin? What sort of man's got his own star? What sort of man has foreign dignitaries that pack up on camels and ride for 800 miles to bring him piles of gold and worship at his feet when he's a baby. What sort of man's got kings trying to kill him when he's two? What sort of man has the sky rip open and God speak in a loud voice, this is my son, when he's baptized. What sort of man has the devil come and try to tempt him in person? And what sort of man preaches like this? Who can cast out demons? Who can, who can go and heal everybody in town? Of everything. And on top of all that, every time you turn around, Matthew's saying, this or that happened as it was written. Who can do that? What sort of man is this? And we're only at chapter 8. So, so what's Matthew doing? He's showing us Christ. Matthew is presenting Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and Emmanuel, God with us. That's what he's doing. 
We're in the middle of a new section now, a section of miracles that, that come on the heels of this great sermon on the mount. And now Matthew's been presenting Jesus' authority first in his preaching, in his word, and now in his miracles, in his deeds. The authority of Christ has been heard. Now, man, it's being seen. Matthew is presenting us Three groups of three miracles with an extra one on the end. Ten miracles. And every group of three has got a little narrative section between. And we heard that first narrative section preached by Dustin last week about the cost of following Jesus. And today we're going to see that first miracle in the second set of three. Jesus comes the storm. But first I want you to think about something. I want you to consider that claim that Jesus makes at the end of Matthew. When he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I heard that so many times and one day it landed on me of what he's saying. So many things in the Bible we just read right past. Never give them deep thoughts. It's a mind-boggling statement that this man has all authority. All authority in heaven and earth. Jesus is describing his range of authority and it includes it all. Every. Thing. Everything from heaven to earth and everything in between. Every molecule, every seraphim, every law of physics, and every demonic spirit, even the authority to judge or forgive your sin. Authority that reaches from the belly of the earth to the throne of God. Who has that sort of authority? Not a man. Not a little speck on a speck. But that's what we see. It's what Matthew's doing. He's, he's presenting Jesus as that. He's presenting Jesus' cosmic sovereignty. All authority in heaven and on earth, we're seeing that on display right now. We've seen him have sovereignty over the human body, over every disease and sickness. Now we're going to see his sovereignty even over the wind and the waves. Next week, sovereignty over the entire demonic realm with a word, one word. And then we're going to see him have the highest authority of all. To forgive a man of all his sins. And man, Matthew has arranged these miracles in a way to also present Jesus as a prophet, the prophet, the king, and the priest. I mean, today we're going to see Jesus as the great prophet whose own words 
are the words of God. The greater Jonah, then next week you'll see him as the great eternal king whose uh, kingdom, whose dominion reaches everywhere, every realm, even the demonic spiritual realm. And then we'll see him as priest. Great high priest who can forgive sin without a sacrifice. So today, Matthew 8, 23, and I want to read, I want to start back at verse 18 because that's kind of where this scene starts and this scene, and I want you to see it that way. This is a scene. This is a real historical event that we get a bird's eye view at. This is a scene set at the, beside the Sea of Galilee. This little inland freshwater lake. It's about 700 feet below sea level. It's less than half the size of Mobile Bay. This is where it starts. Right near Peter's house, right on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee in verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when... Jesus saw a crowd around him. He gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, uh, let, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And then when, when Jesus then got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. Jesus was asleep. And they went and woke him saying, Save us, Lord. We're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. And then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? So Jesus commands his disciples to follow him. You see that in verse 18. He commands them to get in the boat. Let's go to the other side, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But notice what seems to trigger this command when Jesus saw something. Verse 18, when Jesus saw what? A crowd. When Jesus saw a crowd around him, that's when he gave orders to go. But hold on, Jesus you realize that the crowd can't fit in the 12-man boat, right? Exactly. 
Dustin said this last week. Jesus is sifting the crowd. He's winnowing true from false followers. He's not trying to build a following. Jesus is not trying to get his numbers up. Jesus is not trying to jack up his Twitter following. He's not trying to build a megachurch. Jesus is calling those who are willing to follow him on the hard and narrow way that leads to life. Jesus is calling those that are ready right now to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And you know what? There are a few that find it and there's a few that seek it. But he orders his disciples into the boat and really into a storm. Jesus orders his disciples into the boat, onto the sea, and over to the other side. Now I wonder, I wonder if Jesus realizes that the storm of the century is about to drop. Chapter 9, verse 4, you can see that Jesus knows the thoughts of men. He knows what's in their hearts. I guarantee you, he knows the storm is coming. As a matter of fact, I have no doubt that it's Jesus that starts the storm that he stops. Wait a minute. Are you, are you saying that Jesus did this on purpose? Exactly. Jesus orders his disciples into a great storm on purpose. Now, why in the world would Jesus do that? God is a God of purpose. God does everything on purpose, for a purpose. And his purpose will not fail. And he orders his disciples into a great storm on purpose, for a purpose. And here's three ideas or takes on that one Jesus is doing something here he's proving something he's proving that he is what his name says he is Emmanuel God with us Emmanuel you remember that chapter one you remember that, that that's Jesus' name angel comes to Joseph and says look Mary is going to bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. And Matthew says, you know what? This, this is all taking place in order to fulfill that text from Isaiah. It says, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which means God with us. Wait a minute. Is Jesus' his name Jesus? The one who's going to... Save his people from his sins, or is it Emmanuel, God with us? Yes. And these next three miracles are going to put that on display. Both. You're going to see the one in the boat literally with them is God. And you know where this boat's heading? To the other side? 
where Jesus is going to prove that he is the Savior of sinners. This is what he's doing. He's going to prove that he is the Savior of sinners. You see, the Pharisees, they travel land and sea to make a twofold child of hell. Jesus travels land and sea to make two children of hell children of God. He's going to save two sinners. He's going to ride through a hurricane to save two sinners and damn a whole town. This little boat ride is going to prove that Jesus really does, really has come to seek and to save the lost. And along the way, he's going to sanctify those that are following him. He's going to build up their little faith. This is what he's doing. He's proving. This is nothing he's doing, right? He's proving and improving his disciples' faith. The Bible speaks of genuine faith as gold, refining gold. How you put it in the fire to prove that it's really gold. And that same process burns away the impurities and improves it. The Bible says... Matter of fact, Peter, one of the guys in this boat, is the one who writes that genuine faith will be tested as gold is tested by fire. And the result is praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Tested, genuine faith, improving of your faith. This is what's about to happen to Peter. This is what's about to happen to every disciple that gets in the boat and follows Jesus. So the takeaway here, your faith will be tested too. Your, your faith will be tested. Understand that. And understand that it is for your good because genuine faith leads to life And so be prepared for that and pray. This is one of the things Jesus has just taught us to pray. In the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation or trial. Lord, be gentle with me in testing and proving my faith. Please. But if you do lead me to a trial, please deliver me from it. Help me. That's what's about to happen to these guys. And so he, who gets in the boat? Not many. Verse 23 says, And when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Jesus said, Follow me, and his disciples followed him. The crowds? No, it says his disciples. And let's be clear about the boat again. This is not a cruise ship. This is a little fishing boat that... Couldn't hold more than a dozen folks. The Mark tells us that there were other boats, but still, we're only talking about a handful of followers, a few followers. I have no idea about the hasty scribe or the hesitant disciple, but I'm sure about the fishers of men. Remember that? Remember them in, in, in chapter 4? 
Peter and his brother Andrew, John and his brother James, Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee where they're fishing, and he calls them to follow him. He says, I will make you fishers of men. And he calls them, and guess what? It says, immediately they left their nets. Immediately they left their boat. Immediately they left their father. And here they are again, immediately getting in the boat, leaving that all behind. No hesitation, no excuses, nothing untended. But you think they know what they're getting into? You think they're heading into a great storm notice this the disciples are going to find themselves real quickly going to find themselves in a life-threatening situation because they follow jesus would they have followed him had they known you see the the call to follow jesus is temporally Note that word. Temporarily uncertain, difficult, and sometimes dangerous. Did Abraham know where he was going? By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go, and he went, not knowing where he was going. Did Andrew, Peter, James, and John know what they were getting into when they dropped their nets and followed Jesus in chapter 4? Did Matthew, over in chapter 9, the author of this gospel, did he know what he was getting into when he stood up immediately from that tax table and turned from his riches and began to follow after Jesus? Did they realize at the time what it meant To be a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe not fully, but they found out. And man, listen, their lives and their writings are putting it on display for us. We are perfectly informed of what it means to follow Jesus. This is the call, brothers and sisters. Temporal uncertainty. Not eternal. Temporal difficulty. Not eternal. Temporal danger. But man, not eternal. But listen, the call to follow Jesus here is not a call to blind faith. This is exactly what Scripture is teaching us today. This is exactly what the Sermon on the Mount has been teaching us. He says, look, look to your heavenly Father, the one who cares for you more than he does the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. And now we're saying, look, just look at the one you're following here in this passage, the one whom even the winds and the sea obey. It's not blind faith. There it is. So what do you do with that? You don't fear the future. They they didn't know exactly where they were going. Following Christ, you don't know exactly where you're going. Don't fear the good providence of God. 
Because the Lord is with you. You, you get this. Look, get this. You can't follow somebody without them being with you. Man, some things are so stunningly obvious. If you follow, if you're following Jesus, it's because He's leading you and He's with you. He is sovereign over us. If you run into a grievous trial in the future, it's because He led you there. But remember, Psalm 23, the, the great shepherd doesn't just lead us to the valley of the shadow of death. He leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. And David adds, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Do you believe that? And so they get in the boat, verse 24, and what do you know? Hurricane. It says, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. I think it's really hard for us to comprehend just how sudden and severe and unique this storm was. But you, listen, you can't comprehend the great calm unless you understand and comprehend the great storm that's here. And this account gives us some details about its unique severity. The account goes from boat to behold. Verse 24 is basically starting off with an exclamation point. It's meant to get our attention, to alert us to this drastic scene change. It's like they got in the boat and bam! Big storm. Mega storm. Mega storm. That's literally what the word is. Mega storm. But the storm word is really more like seismic. Mega seismic. Like earthquake. What? Ocean earthquake? It's an ocean earthquake. It's a mega ocean earthquake. That's what's going on. It's a sea quake. Imagine that. On a little boat. The tumultuous commotion. It says the boat was being swamped by waves. I don't know how much you know about waves. But there's lots of ways you can measure waves on the ocean, on the sea. There's the height. Man, how big or how tall are they? Then there's the length, the wavelength, like how, how far apart are they? And then there's the period of how, how quick they're rolling in. And, and the period and the wavelength are, are really related. But the important part about that is it doesn't always matter how big the wave is. You could be on the ocean with a, a little 25-foot boat in 10-foot seas, and as long as they're spread out, man, you're just... Rising and falling with the swells. But when those jokers get close together in this low-profile boat, bam, 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 no time to lift the boat. They're washing over. That's what's going on. And they're terrified. And that tells us something. These guys are terrified? 
Look, they really think they're going to die. They say, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Present tense, right now, we are dying as we speak. We're going down. We're drowning. Now, how many, how many storms do you think these professional fishermen on the Sea of Galilee, how many storms do you think they've seen? Where are they when they give the command to get in the boat? They're at Peter's house, verse 14. Where's Peter's house? Capernaum, verse 5. Where's Capernaum? On the northern shore of Galilee. How long has Peter been sailing these waters? Since he was tall enough to climb up in this little low-profile fishing boat? How many storms has Peter seen on the Sea of Galilee? All of them. You think he knows how to swim? Yeah, he does. The end of the Gospel of John, he jumps in the water, swims to Jesus. But look at him now. 20 years or more on the sea, and now he's got no chance, no chance except to call upon this carpenter from Nazareth who's asleep on the stern. He's asleep. Verse 24, great storm, boat swamped, but Jesus was asleep. The boat is sinking fast, but Jesus is fast asleep. What a stunning contrast here. On purpose again, everybody and everything is freaking out except Jesus. Why was he asleep? Why was he asleep? The answers to that question all reveal the glory of Jesus Christ. First reason he's asleep is he's tired. Jesus is a tired man. He's a man and he's tired. It's late in the evening. After spending all day at Peter's house dealing with the crowds. It says in verse 16. That evening they brought to Jesus many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word. And he healed all the sick. You ever battled demons all day? Man, doesn't that wear you out? You ever healed everybody in the city? Doesn't that make you tired? He's a tired man. He really is asleep on the back deck of a tiny little boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee in the middle of a raging storm. He really does have nowhere to lay his head. That's one reason he's asleep. second reason he's asleep is he trusts his Father. He trusts his Heavenly Father. Jesus is practicing what he preaches. He just preached. We just studied it a while back in Matthew 6 about don't be anxious for your life. Don't you know your father cares for you more than he does the birds and the flowers? How much more if you're in a storm? Jesus did that perfectly. He knew. He knew, really knew the father loved him. He trusted everything and every moment to his heavenly father. Even when he was attacked and reviled, guess what? He continued to entrusting himself to the father who judges justly. Even on the cross at his last breath, he says, 
Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's a little hurricane on the Sea of Galilee. No big deal. Time for a nap. He trusts his heavenly Father. And guess what else? Why is he asleep? He knows his hour has not yet come. Jesus knows it. How many times do you see that in the Gospel of John, expressing this idea, this awareness that Jesus' hour has not come? He says it himself sometimes. My hour has not yet come. At the Passover, it says Jesus knew that his hour had not yet come. When he's praying that last high priestly prayer before the cross, he opens prayer with, Father, now the hour has come. Get this. Pay attention right here. Jesus' hour was, was, was on a tree, not on a boat. Jesus would suffer and die for sinners, not suffocate and drown in the sea. He knew it. Here's another reason he's asleep. Jesus is the greater Jonah. Every good little Jewish boy, the ones that are not slow of heart, would have, would have to think, wait a minute, this sounds familiar. This sounds like another story I know. Another story where there was a mega storm on the sea and there was this prophet who was fast asleep in the boat and there were these experienced mariners who were just totally freaking out. They really thought they were going to die and everybody was calling out to his own God and in the end this great storm suddenly went to a great calm and in the great calm these men feared the Lord more. Down from here. That sleeping prophet's name was Jonah. Jesus tells us a little later in Matthew 12 that he's the greater Jonah. Now there's a, there's a bunch of similarities between Jesus and Jonah. There's a bunch of differences between Jesus and Jonah. And that's what typology is all about. But there's two points that are immediately relevant to this story in Matthew. The first one is this, that the raging tempest here is not calmed by Jesus throwing himself into the storm. That typology will be filled, fulfilled later in his crucifixion and resurrection. But the raging tempest would be calmed by calling out to Jonah's God, Yahweh, and that's the point. Jesus is Jonah's God. Remember that? See, the Bible is clear on this. That there is only one who rules the wind and the wave. Only the God of Genesis 1 tells the water where to go and what to do. Only the God of Noah determines when the flood comes and who will perish. 
Only the God of Moses can, can split the sea wide open to save his people and deliver them into the wilderness and drown his enemies. And only the God of Joshua can split open the Jordan River and deliver his people into the long promised land. And Jonah's God is the only one that can calm a raging sea. And so it is. Here he is. The God of Jonah, Yahweh in the flesh, Yahweh with them in the boat. And they don't know it. God is with them and they don't even know it. Yet, they're about to find out. He's going to prove himself. But right now they are terrified. Look at verse 25 and 26, they went and they woke Jesus up and they said, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And Jesus said to them, Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Jesus is asleep, but they're terrified, just like the mariners in Jonah. They genuinely fear for their life, and they wake up Jesus in a panic. And look at Jesus' response to them. He says two things that are totally connected, by the way. He says, why are you afraid? You have little faith. Why does Jesus say that? Because fear and faith don't mix. They're connected and they're, they're not connected. They're opposed. Fear of circumstance and faith in God do not go together. Jesus calls them cowardly. Literally, that's what it means. You, why are you cowardly? That's not the way you want Jesus describing you. Matter of fact, you see fear and faithlessness together on Judgment Day in Revelation 20. When the cowards and the faithful, faithless are to be cast into the lake of fire. This is not something you want to hear from Jesus, but you'd rather hear it now than then. But he doesn't use the word faithless here. He's not saying they don't, have, they, they don't have any faith. He's saying they have little faith. Or better translated, I think, deficient faith. You got defic- your faith is deficient. Ineffective faith. Your, your faith isn't, isn't working right. How is it deficient? Think about that. How is their faith ineffective? Well, if their faith was more sufficient, if their faith was more effective, they would be less terrified right now. You see how that goes together? And so Jesus here, on his way to hearing and answering their cry of little faith, he issues a rebuke. Why are you cowardly? Why is your faith deficient? And so how is it? This is, this is important to this story. How is it that their faith is deficient? Because we don't want our faith to be deficient. First, the disciples did not fully trust their heavenly father. We already talked about this. Jesus already preached on this. Don't worry about your life. Your father loves you. Your father cares for you. Already they're forgetting that. Already they're not obeying that. 
Trust Him. Trust your Heavenly Father. You got the perfect example asleep on the stern. They were nowhere near imitating Jesus Christ, as we're called to do. We're being conformed into his image, right? Ryan prayed that this morning. Here it is. You trust your heavenly father. The second reason their faith is deficient is because they did not fully trust their eyes. They didn't fully trust what they had already seen. They're not trusting what they heard about the father. They're not trusting what they've seen about Jesus. Remember, they, like ever since they've come down from that mountain with Jesus, Jesus has been a miracle machine. Lepers healed before their eyes. Paralytics restored. Demons cast out while they're watching. Everybody in town healed on the spot. What more did they need to see? And that's the problem with seeing. No matter what the billboard says, seeing ain't believing. Seeing's not believing. Eyeballing miracles does not produce faith. Man, if I was in Jesus' day, I'd believe. Man, these people killed Jesus who saw all these miracles. Faith comes through hearing the word of Christ. Faith is a gift of God wrought by the Holy Spirit. They need to work inside, not here. And this reminds me of the Israelites in the wilderness. For 40 years, they didn't believe. And what had they seen? The greatest manifestation of God's power ever shown to men. Plagues, earthquakes, rumbling, thundering voice from Mount Sinai, bread from heaven, water from the rock, enemies cast down, seas split open, shoes didn't even wear out for 40 years, and they didn't believe a thing. And at the end, God said, you've seen all that I've done with your own eyes. And here's the problem. To this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. That's part of their problem right now. They don't need more miracles. They need more grace. And they're getting it. This is part of it. This trial, this storm, and this revelation of Jesus Christ is part of it. The last reason their faith is deficient is because they didn't fully trust that Jesus was the Christ. They grew up hearing and hoping in the Messiah. They even believed real early on that Jesus was the Messiah. You can see this in John chapter 1. Peter's brother, Andrew, is there when John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God. And then Andrew goes and stays with Jesus all day talking to him. And then at the end of the day, he runs to Peter and says, we found a Messiah. Come on. This is who's in this boat. But something in this early faith was woefully deficient. Because guess what? I don't remember the part in the Old Testament where the Messiah is going to drown in the lake. 
Messiah wasn't going down with the ship, and they were right there with him, and he was right there with them, literally. Something wasn't full there. They didn't believe he was the Christ. So this is what we need to do. If we really believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, we don't need to fear providence, and we don't need to fear the present. We don't need to fear the present circumstances because the Lord is with you. How many times does the Bible say that? Fear not, for I am with you. Does anybody in here believe that? Fear and faith do not mix. Don't imitate the disciples here. Imitate Christ. Trust Christ. Trust your Heavenly Father. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a little faith here. There's a little faith here. Because despite their little faith, they still cry out to the Lord. They still call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. You see that? It says, they went and woke him and said, save us, Lord. We are perishing. They called upon the Lord and they were saved. Why were they saved? Here's one. They, number one, they knew they needed saving. Man, that was stunningly obvious to them. They knew they needed saving. Right now, I'm dead, man. I have no hope, man. I'm done. I am undone unless somebody does something. They knew it. Do you know it? Do you need saving? Man, I do. Man. We're going through Ephesians 2. In Clinton, man, Ephesians, the whole book, but that chapter 2, man, that describes me to a T. Before I knew Christ. Dead in trespasses and sin. Dead perishing. Following 90 miles an hour after the world, the flesh, and the devil. Consumed with the passions of the flesh and the desires of the body and the mind. Nothing but a child of God's wrath, without hope, without God, far, far from the Lord. They knew they needed saving. And they believed Jesus could save them. That's why they called out. Their, their faith was minuscule. It was deficient. It was not enough to calm their fears, but it was enough for them to call out to Jesus. That's all it takes. They said that simple little phrase, that cry of little faith, save us, O oh Lord, we are perishing. And guess what? Jesus saved them. He answered their call and saved them. They called Jesus saved. Why? Because he's the Savior. That's his name. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What? 
a great truth. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And they were. You see this, look, Jesus doesn't cast out little faith. He improves it. He improves it. Man, I am sure glad to know that because I'm glad to know that God is not like me. I'm sure glad to know that the Lord is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Man, I'm glad to know that because if you wake me up like that, I might throw you out of the boat. Some of y'all will be grumpy and want to let them just, y'all just sweat it out. Some of us would be one and done and go get us some more disciples. Some of us would say, your little faith ain't good enough. Be gone. Cast out. But not with Jesus. Listen, the prayers of little faith are heard by Jesus. Listen to this. Those who come to him with little faith will not be cast out. Jesus says to everybody in the crowd, follow me. He says to all the ones that are weary and heavy laden, come to me. He says to the little children, come to me. You know what else he says? All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So man, what's the application there? Come to the Lord. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Now look across this room. I know there are people in here that are lost right now. There are children in here that are lost right now. There are visitors here that are lost right now. And you know it. You got one half of the problem solved. You know you are perishing. And I'm pleading with you. Don't hesitate. Went to a funeral yesterday. Not yesterday. Friday. Of a young girl in her 20s who I preached the gospel to for four years who was this close to the kingdom of God and every time hesitated. She knew she was perishing. Not yet. Saw her in a box riding. Call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. He saves everybody who comes to him. And if you know this Christ, and you're in trouble, call upon the name of the Lord to be helped. Remember that. Remember the one that's seated in this boat is seated on the throne of grace. And what does he say from the throne of grace? Come to me. Come to me for grace to help in the time of need. That's what he says. Remember that. This is the one, 
The one who calms the storm here is the one on the throne of grace now. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your fears. He knows your trouble. Call upon the name of the Lord and be helped in the time of need. what he does they call out and what happens it says in verse 26 Jesus rose and, and rebuked the wind and the sea and there was a great calm I just have to draw your attention to that wording right there he said Jesus is asleep they call out to him and he rises to save them Man, I, I hear two echoes here. That, that moment where the mariners call out to Jonah, Why are you asleep? Arise! Call out to your God. Perhaps he will save us. And then the second echo I hear is just all through the Psalms, you keep hearing this, Arise, O oh Lord. Arise, O oh Lord. Arise, O oh Lord. Psalm 44, awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rise up, come to our help. And guess what? Jesus does it literally right here. How amazing is it that the Lord God Almighty would stir when we call upon his name? What does he do when he stands up? He, he says something. He rebukes the wind and the waves and he says Peace, be still. According to Mark, he says, peace, be still. Two words. It literally means hush and muzzle, muzzle it. Put a muzzle on it. It's kind of like we would say, zip it. Shush it. It's enough. He's rebuking the wind and the waves. That's an odd word, by the way, to use. Why is he rebuking? There's, there are other words he's commanding for sure. He's commanding nature to do something. Matter of fact, he's almost threatening nature here to do something, to shush it. But why does he use this word? Well, one reason is to show yet again that he's the scripture fulfiller. All through the Old Testament, you see this. Yahweh rebuking the sea. At creation, he re rebukes the waters and they fled. At, at the Red Sea, in the Exodus, he rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry. And this, man, I, I can't imagine the disciples not making a connection to this psalm that they would be so familiar with. Just, just listen to it for a minute. Psalm 107. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the sea, in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind. He commanded the wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to the heaven. They went down to the depth. Their courage melted away in an evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord. In their distress. And he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still. And the waves of the sea were hushed. 
Hush! Then they were glad that the waters were quiet. Who's that talking about? Sunday school answer, Jesus. Why does he rebuke? To remind us that he's fulfilling that. To remind us that he's the creator. All things were made through him and was not anything made that was made without him. And to remind us that he is Emmanuel, God in the flesh, the creator in the flesh, God with us, God literally with them in the boat, with them, with us, always to the end of the age. Remember that next time you face trials. Remember that's who's with us. Remember that every time you pray. That's who you're praying to. He says, peace be still, and it was so. It says, we rebuked the winds and the sea, and it says there was a great calm. Literally, there was this sudden, mega tranquility. Glass. The type of weather that Sailors hate and skiers love. Flat, dead, calm. But you ever notice that he rebukes both the wind and the sea? What would have happened if he'd only done one? Wind, stop. Waves are still going for a while. Or sea, stop. Well, it's flat, but I mean, it's blowing like crazy. He commands them both, and guess what happens? They both stop now. What sort of man? Is this. Last sentence says they marveled. The men marveled. He says, What sort of man is this, even that even the winds and sea obey him? Let's get this straight. The wind and the sea do not obey men. What can you do with a hurricane? Evacuate. Man, weatherman can't even tell you where it's landing tomorrow. Believe me, I know. I had it five times last year. But can you imagine that guy from Weather Channel, Jim Contori or whatever his name is, standing there on TV, roof stripping off behind his back, and he finally goes, you know what? Peace be still. It stops. Ratings would shoot through the roof. No wonder they responded. They marveled. But you know what else? They really feared. If you look at the parallel accounts in Mark and Luke, it says, now they're afraid. Now you just thought they feared earlier. Now they fear this man. And that's one of the takeaways. Fear the Lord. This is the beginning of wisdom. Fear the Lord. But now it's not the same fear as before. They're not, they're not now more terrified of dying. It's a different kind of fear. It's not like the fear you see in uh, the book of Revelation where they're crying out, the ones who don't know Christ, see the Lamb on the judgment seat of Christ, and they're crying out for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them, to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. No, this is a different kind of fear. This is one of trembling love and adoration and wonder at this God-man. 
Jesus Christ. And they say, what sort of man is this? They're basically posing to you one of the most important questions that you have got to get right. Who is Jesus? Do you know the answer to that question? Do you know this Jesus? He is the God man. 100% God. 100% man. And we see this stunning contrast here. Asleep, stop, ocean. Beside Lazarus' tomb, weeping with grief. Rise, Lazarus. Jesus slept and wept and thirst and bled and died all while upholding the universe with the word of his power. The God-man, the Christ, the one who fulfills all these scriptures, Matthew keeps pointing us to, all the promises of God find their end point in him. And he is the son of God. It's funny that the demons get this right in the next paragraph and the, and the disciples hadn't got it yet. The Son from God. The Son of God. So who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? How do you answer that? What sort of man is this question? Later on, Peter would make that great confession. When Jesus says, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. He says, when the disciples start turning away, hey, Peter, you want to go away as well? No. I have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now how did Peter figure that out? Was it miracles only? Well, when Peter makes that great confession in Matthew 16, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but your Father in heaven. Look, if God reveals his Son to you, and you see who Jesus Christ really is, you will follow him. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. This is the power in this call of Christ. When he says, follow me, and you have ears to hear from the Father, guess what? You follow him. And so here we have this word, peace be still from the creator and follow me from the redeemer. Which one's more powerful? Paul, in one of my favorite texts, combines them both. When he says the God who way back there in Genesis 1 said, let there be light. When he shines light into your hearts, he's going to reveal to you. He's going to give you the knowledge of the glory of God. In the face of Jesus Christ. The power of our creator to redeem sinners. This is who we worship. This is who we follow. This is who we pray to. 
this is who's with us, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Father, we we praise you for blessing us with a knowledge of Jesus Christ. I pray, I plead with you that that you would send your word forth again, that you would shine your light forth right now into the hearts and rip open the veil of those who don't know Jesus, who have not seen his glory. And turn the light up in us that we would see more of his glory, that we would really trust and have no fear of the future, no fear of the present, that we would trust you always and call upon your name and know that you, the faithful one, our rock, you are with us. You are with us. You are Emmanuel. We praise you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for sending your son into the world to save sinners with power. May he be exalted. In his name we pray. Amen.